So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here with a new playback for you. This is the episode we release on the last Friday of each month in which we pair an interview from our back catalogue with what you've just been hearing in the latest episode in order to further enrich us all. Um, This month on the main podcast, hopefully you've heard me talking to Sue Beer about her quest for justice for the Freshwater Five. So what do we pair with that? Uh, Some of you suggested for this playback edition we might rerun our middle feature, The Fatal Blow. Uh, That was from 2022. That was about the joint enterprise laws. We did think about that. We thought as well about maybe military surplus, which was the episode where, again, we tapped into that feeling of being wronged by the system that's there to protect us. But instead, uh, we are going to pair up our February episode with the drugs element. For this month's playback, we're heading back to Season 3, Episode 4 from 2016, The Gentleman Bank Robber, which looks at where some Class A drugs end up and what impact that has on society. Meet Radcliffe Royds. He's a fantastic storyteller after this. Now, we've all had moments when we've been a little hard up for cash. Uh, Maybe you've been holding out those last few days at the end of the month before your paycheck arrives, or perhaps when your boiler broke down you had to cancel a holiday or sell your car. I think I can assume with confidence that you've never been as hard up as my guest today, Radcliffe Royds, who was born into money, but found himself down on his luck and decided with his mate Delroy to take matters into his own hands. I sort of got all gung-ho and I said, come on, Del, we really need to, uh, we need to raise our game. And I thought, I'm privately educated, I've got all these fabulous advantages in life, use your brain, Rad. And I decided that we were going to rob a bank. We had plastic bags, we had bananas. Actually, I had a banana and Del had a cucumber. To pretend that it was a gun. If it became necessary, the idea was to go in at opening hours when people's guard would be down and they'd be flustered and, you know, sorting out their till record and sorting out their bit ready for the day. Mm-hmm. And was to go in there and very firmly push a note through uh, and say, I just want you to fill this bag. Is that what the note said? You went yeah. in with a prepared note? Yeah. Note, I just want you to fill this bag. The note was very simple. It was written in um, mascara on a piece of folded A4 paper. Uh, I had a Scrabble kit. For some reason, I'd kept the bag that it came in. It was a sort of travel Scrabble thing. I kept the bag for some reason, and I thought it looked rather good as a swag bag, you know, that sort of old-fashioned idea of <laughs> guy with it over his shoulder. And the idea was to freak them out so much that they would knee-jerk reaction, just fill the bag with whatever money they had in the till drawer. And we weren't trying to get to the safe, wasn't trying to do anything too heavy. I do appreciate that... Uh, even imitating a firearm becomes a very serious crime. My only mitigating circumstance was that I was so high on crack cocaine I couldn't have told you what my name was, let alone 
what I was really doing. I just knew that I needed to get lots of cash. And I thought if we go in, first thing, we'll probably get, you know, five grand, ten grand. We'll walk out. That's us. Happy. Did um, you have anything on your face to disguise yourself? No, absolutely not. By the time we actually got our shit together, it was Sunday morning. And um, like most banks, the one we'd chosen, which was NatWest, was shut on Sunday morning. It wasn't particularly well thought through. And my only training for this caper had been stealing meat, really, from shoplifting out of Sainsbury's and Waitrose. I would steal 10 quid's worth of meat, I'd get £5 for it. So you'd get 50p in the pound. From, from, from who? Well, I actually, slight justification, um, at the time justified what I was doing because I had uh, one of the boroughs, uh, central London boroughs, the lady who was tasked with supplying Meals on Wheels for the elderly, I had an in to her. And um, I would go around with 100 quid's worth of meat and she would give me 50p in the pound. So if I had 100 pounds worth, she'd give me 50 quid. And that would be my breakfast. I'd go and do it again. And and that would... Go towards Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels. Yeah. Your stolen meat would be given yeah. out. So it was really, I mean, it was twofold sort of joy, really, because it was, it was helping the, the, the homeless and uh, the Meals on Wheels uh, crew, the elderly. It was a public service, I think, <laughs> fair to say. Let's just go back to that bank then. So, right. so you go in, you so hand over your notes. Morning, and yeah. of course, you know, you sort of slightly realise, oh, hang on, the bank's not going to be open. I noticed there was a Portuguese cleaning crew. And I said to my, my oppo, I said, all right, We'll go in as part of the cleaning crew. And the idea was we were going to crash through if we had to, get into the main bit of the bank. This was the cleaning crew who had obviously access everywhere. Mm. And my thinking was that they wouldn't empty the trays at the counter. I thought they must leave money in those, you know, because the whole building gets locked up. And it was just a swipe and swoop and be in and out. You know, the whole caper was going to take a minute. As you can imagine, didn't really blend in with the Portuguese cleaning crew in quite the way one would have hoped. Mm. And they immediately challenged us. And I tried to style it out. You know, and I, my, my Portuguese can reach to, I think I can order prawns, two <laughs> beers and four coffees. And that's about as far as it goes. Um, but he got chased out of the building, not to be deterred. There were some people at the cash point. So having tried to rob the bank, I then downgraded the plan and just took, I think it was 200 quid I got, uh, just got hold of the guy at the cash point. Robbed he, it of someone who was withdrawing I, some cash. Yeah, absolutely, as we passed. I just said, hang on a minute, Del. Elbowed the guy out of the way, grabbed the money. And by now, the police had been alerted and the bank is very near where the police station in Chelsea is. Del went left, I went right, and I went charging up the road. And uh, a Bob the Builder have-a-go hero, uh, driving a Nissan Irvan, drove at me and pinned me up against the wall. So I couldn't move. Oh, deliberately? Oh, yeah. To hold you for the police? Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, the game was up. So, how does a sort of debonair-sounding chap from the King's Road end up 20 years later out of his face on crack cocaine trying to rob a bank? It was the breakdown of my second marriage. Um, I came home from a weekend away and my wife had changed the locks. And I rang up an old mate, you know, I had to go and stay somewhere, um, thinking I'd be able to talk her around. And I came to my friend's house uh, up in West London, just by Lambert Grove, and as I walked in the door, he said, oh man, what a bitch. 
um, poor thing, you know, come on in, come on in. And his girlfriend was uh, standing behind him, carrying a tray, rather attractive sort of silver salver, uh, on which were placed various pharmaceuticals. And I, at this point, had been drug-free for a little while. I was so stung at the rejection and the sort of realisation of the marriage. You know, I had only got married five months before, so mm. it was, uh, I found a rather devastating blow to suddenly find myself a homeless, uh, the marriage breaking up, and I effectively just stayed at his house, and we just took more and more drugs. I had the joint account, and I was so angry with my ex-wife pending, as she was, then I was just rinsing that, so £300 a day. On drugs? Straight on to heroin and, and crack cocaine. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it, because you'd assume with a lot of people that are from your sort of background, cocaine was in fashion in the 80s. But there oh, basically yeah. comes a point where you'll say, you know, I'll spend my money on, on wine and cocaine, basically, and not go on to smack. That that's something that's just... I was a bit of a wild child, yes, and I had access to... to um, money and drugs at a very young age and I sort of went through a fairly typical progression you know I smoked weed and blue acid and did lines of coke and actually the very first time I took heroin I didn't know I was taking it I better be a bit careful what I say but should we say one of the most senior officers of the court in Scotland his son um, I was selling him a weight of dope I was a dope dope dealer uh, in Edinburgh after I'd been chucked out of school and um, I uh, he was playing backgammon, you know, it was like a De Palma movie, you know, Scarface, you know, we were playing backgammon, and he, he said, hey, do you want a line of coke? And I said, yeah, yeah, man, you know, and I was going to try and sell him this dope, and, you know, he was trying to get me relaxed, talking about music, talking about this, have a line of coke, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had this line of coke, and I went, snorted it, and went, whoa, <laughs> wow, that's the best coke I've ever had. And he said, uh, oh, I didn't mention it, it's uh, it's mixed with smack. I didn't actually know what smack was. This is a slang term for heroin. You know, my brother, he's a very established figure and runs the army, and my sister is a wonderful, you know, mother and, and, and businesswoman. You know, they had the same upbringing I did. They didn't go down the route I did. I shared a flat with one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, in fact, so I, latterly, when I sort of hold on to the drugs, I would hide them under her bed, thinking, well, the police are never going to search her. So it was perfect. I sort of had this lovely dual life where I was you know, the posh kid, you know, and all the sort of local Edinburgh hoods thought, well, he's great because he's, he can get us access to a market that we don't can't tap into, you know. Mm. Um, and presumably, the police probably weren't expecting you to be the dealer either. No. You see, that is where so many people, so many people get it wrong. Because you sort of speak with the right accent, you've got the right shoes and the right clothes, and you obviously know the right sort of people, and you've been well educated, mm. that you're above that sort of thing. And I hid behind that. I would use that to my advantage. I was ruthless. So take me back to your friend's house around Notting Hill. Yep. You're sleeping on his sofa or whatever, and you're taking a lot of drugs, and you're spending the joint account. Mm -hmm. Do you have a job at this point? Yeah, I did, yeah. So you were working nine to five as well? Well, I, I, funnily enough, I was working... <laughs> working. I don't suppose I should say this out loud. Um, I was working for our now uh, current Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> uh, working for a company called the Investors Notice Board. Uh -huh. um, I'd been headhunted by Amber Rudd, and I worked very closely with her. Um, and, uh, gosh, I could be running the country by now, couldn't I? Good God.
had all the trappings, you know, a nice house in Clapham and a wife and three children and two stepchildren and prospects, you know, the man, man was going places. Had you been drinking the whole way through your marriage anyway? No. So you'd actually been completely clean yep. and then went straight back into heroin? Yep. Wow. I can imagine that that's just a, a sudden crash. It was rather like having sex with a gorilla. It seemed like a good idea at the time, and it wasn't me that was going to say when to stop. So I, I can sort of guess what happened here. You lost your job eventually. Yeah, I, I, sort, of, I sort of became more and more untogether. And you lost your money. And when the money stopped and my wife had stopped the joint account, I had to get creative. And uh, I started being very creative, and I would ring people up saying, "Oh, mate, nightmare! My car's been towed away. Can you can you lend me three hundred pounds? I can get my car out." And I got away with this for you know a good couple of months. And all that money went straight onto drugs. Oh, really? all I ever did was buy drugs, and I very quickly went back into the life, and I didn't even bother to hide it. Now, my watchword in the past was always to hide. So I'd be high, but I'd hide it. Now I didn't have any breaks. I had no, I was totally kamikaze. I'd go babysit someone's house for a while. You know, I'd sell the light fittings. You know, it's one poor guy. I sold his fireplace. I sold his floorboards. Where were you living when you robbed the bank? Oh, I was living in, um, I was living in a skip in the West End. In a dumpster? Yep. It was a 12-yard builder's skip. It was this bizarre thing. I rang my, in fact, I'll never forget it. I, it was, must have been... August, end of August, late August, early September, and I rang my mother and said, how would it be if I came home for a few days, thinking I just want some respite, so I'm safe to hold up? And she very curtly said, oh, no, darling, our insurance wouldn't cover that. (laughs) What did she mean by that? I wasn't welcome. My parents had learned the hard way to uh, ring fence themselves from me and my, my addiction. You know, so I, you know, I didn't have any support from my family whatsoever. Is that because, looking back on it now, I mean, that sounds very unsupportive, obviously, but is that because she wanted you to get arrested? She wanted you to yes, have to be they forced believed, to clean up? They genuinely believed that the, the thing to do was to accelerate me towards what we call a rock bottom, mm. where I would actually reach out and go, oh, help. Mm. What it deserved to do is just make me more and more angry. I mean, living in a skip in Soho, you see a lot of people walk past you who were the kind of, the kind of chaps you were at school with. Oh, I, I used to, various times, I remember begging outside Bayswater Station, sitting there with a dog on a string type arrangement, and um, my children's nanny standing in front of me in floods of tears. I mean, they often say we don't have feelings when we're using oh, this sense of shame I had. That was awful. And she was just standing there crying, saying, how can you do this? I couldn't, I didn't have an answer. What I could do was more. You just, you just needed more drugs. Yeah. It was incredibly... But you're intelligent enough to know you desperately needed help, so why didn't you reach out for help? Just because the power of the heroin was stronger? Yeah. I mean, I can see where you see the dilemma. Is why this guy, you know, had all these advantages, privately educated, comes from money, well set, intelligent, but all these advantages weren't. The nature of addiction is this. It, it subsumes every other facet of humanity. I would tell you how much I love my children, but I'd be smoking their birthday presents in a crack house while they waited for me to not show up at their birthday parties. I was a nightmare. So that's how you found yourself trying badly to rob a bank, and then you get arrested. This is the point where your parents would be thinking... Good, he's going to get his act sorted out now. What, what happened? 
Well, what actually did happen is, of course, I, I, I got arrested. And as soon as they knew who I was, you know, they thought it was Christmas. They cleaned up every, you know, all the sort of stolen meat mystery of, 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 of London supermarkets was cleared up in the trice, you know. And I got uh, sent off to Wandsworth. And when uh, my Bob the Builder, Have a Go Hero, had um, parked, he'd driven over my feet and he'd crushed my big toes. And so I was in... Uh, real agony and my legs had swollen up I had what I call affectionately called kebab leg disease and they'd swelled up I was you know full of cellulitis and was living rough and feral so you know my hygiene standard was way down you know it probably saved my life going into prison but I was so ill they said you know, you've got to take me to a hospital and I was sort of shackled and physically pinioned to these guards you know because I was a dangerous society apparently I mean where they thought I was going to run you know I had broken toes I could barely hobble and this cousin of my second wife was at a sort of Friends of the Hospital bookstall in, in the corridor of the hospital, and it was a long corridor, and I'm tall, so she saw me from a distance and sort of went, oh, yoo-hoo, and, and then saw me, sort of shackled to these huge sort of, you know, meathead screws. And she sort of passed out, and I was so shocked, and I sort of saw a reflection of myself in a, in a glass panel, and I was scabby and dirty and unwashed and at the vagaries and the mercy of the criminal justice system. And that was not my plan. I wanted to chill out and get high. I was jailed, which is held on judge's remand for about a year. Every three weeks, taken up for sentencing. Every three weeks, they couldn't work out what to do with me. And I, funnily enough, was in the dock, which is not a place I was customarily used to telling the truth. And the judge turned to me, and he, Justin Phillips, a very enlightened man, I'm incredibly grateful to him. He turned to me, he said, what on earth do I do with you, Radcliffe? And I broke down, actually, and I just said, help me. And he said, how do you help, how can I help you? And I didn't have any answers. I really didn't. I, he used me as a guinea pig. His experience of dealing with the sort of day-to-day traffic of ne'er-do-wells going through his court. You know, something like 85% of all crime in London is drug-related or drink-related. And he very he engaged with me as a human being, and he took me out of the dock, and he would sit next to me. He'd sit there with, you know, tracky bottoms and a pair of trainers in the court. And he developed this thing called the Dedicated Drugs Court in West London. And they'd had one in Leeds and one in, in London, where certain trigger offences... You'd be approached by the probation services and said, if you are here as a result of a drug problem, we are prepared to offer you support and help to combat that. And aimed at harm reduction. You know, I mean, a junkie has to steal lots of handbags and stuff to get his habit fed, you know. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story, because as you say, even though you've gone through that whole process and you did manage to come clean again for a period, there was another relapse. You know, very quickly, one, you put your life back together, you physically get better very quickly, and you, you know, then you got jobs, I re-engaged with my family, and I became a productive member of society. You know, and, and, and to all intents and purposes, so I thought, pretty at one with the world. The problem with addiction is the condition is not about the drugs, it's about the addict. And the addict, left untreated, the disease will continue, and people will find themselves going into obsessive compulsive behaviours in other ways. For me, I had sort of spent 10 years, you, know, you think, well, that's behind me, I've done that. 
I'll be all right to have a couple of drinks. I'd moved out of London. I was in a new relationship with a lovely girlfriend and step, more stepchildren and all family friends and everyone knew you know, each other. And we, you know, I had enriching, engaging relationships with my children and my family and with myself. But I, for some reason, I put my foot off the gas or I, I sort of thought, well, I'm not interested in taking drugs, but it'd be nice to have a couple of drinks at a party, you know. I mean, some people are shouting at their mobile phones now as they listen to this, saying that's obviously ridiculous. I'm not, actually. I mean, I'm looking at you and I'm hearing you tell this story and I can understand that. I can understand that after 10 years of being clean, you might think your addictive personality wouldn't extend to a couple of glasses of wine. Absolutely. And I mean, that you know, there's no hiding from it. That that was what I thought. I thought I would be okay. Which seems naive now, but I get it. Obviously, with experience, we we can look back. And you you might think that with the knowledge I'd had, and I've been battling addiction since, since I was a kid, I guess I stopped believing that I was powerless over those drink and those drugs. You know, the, the, the concept of once you put it in my system, it unleashes the whirlwind. I mean, every experience I had told me that was so. But I still believed that having spent so much time, I mean, you know, 10 years is a long time. I don't care what anybody says. That's a long time not to be doing all that. You forget. And I'd moved out of London. So my contact with my solution became thinner and thinner and thinner and I didn't take it under committee I just decided with my partner I said you know I think I might have a, have a couple of drinks she said, well, go on why not I was then compounded by I had um, some chronic pain issues with, with sciatica and prolapse discs and they put me on a, on a drug called pregabalin oh, hideous stuff Anyway, I went cold turkey off that stuff. The pain problem was still there, and I started this time taking over-the-counter medication, some Nurofen Plus, and having the odd drink. Not every day, at parties, you know, dinner once or twice a week, you know, tie one on. I really got pissed, and then there were a couple of legendary occasions when I did, and smoked a few spliffs. And then somebody had some ecstasy, and I, you know, and I thought, well, it's still not the heroin that I, you know, in the crack. You know, it's not all that. The ability to delude myself is still there. That denial system, <laughs> and I ended up drinking a liter of vodka a day, taking a hundred Nurofen Plus a day, yes. and telling myself, well, at least I'm not on the powders and I'm not on the needle. Made myself incredibly ill, so ill, in fact, I ended up in a coma for two months, and uh, I've come out of that coma. This is recent, isn't it? This was a year ago. It's almost a year ago to the day I left hospital. Yeah. You don't look like you've recently been in a coma. I mean, I'll be honest, you look thin. You don't look I was 16 that stone Ill. when I went into hospital. I'm now nine. Yeah. So my friends all think I've got AIDS or cancer or I'm checking out. What do you think your old mate Amber Rudd should do about drugs policy in this country? I think that... Um, given that she knows several people, me included, who have first-hand experience of, of uh, drug addiction and how to uh, survive a habit, how to get over one and how to live drug-free, they should draw, or she should get her, her team and her civil servants to draw on the experience of people who have found a route out and actually stop fighting an unwinnable war on drugs. It clearly, prohibition clearly doesn't work because everybody's still doing what they do. So that clearly doesn't work. And it's insane to go on promulgating the, the notion that we can beat the war on drugs. You can't. There are more and more poppy fields. There are more and more bales of cocaine. What they should do is legalize the lot of it, decriminalize it, 
reduce the collateral damage because society's real problem with drug addicts is not the drug addicts it's the fact that they keep stealing and robbing your television stop that people are left to their own devices they can do what they like yes look at the portuguese model they have taken drug policy out of the criminal justice system and put it into the health system and they're having fantastic results if you criminalize it you just glamorize it you just marginalize the people and put them in a position where they are unable to access the help they need because by doing so they have to admit they're they're ne'er-do-wells and they immediately you you marginalize them so i would hope that she would have the um, the humility to to look at people who actually know what they're talking about and that's people that have had a drug problem or a drink problem or have one you know and who have found a way out of it the war on drugs will never be won as long as they go about it in the way they do it's insane Radcliffe Royds. We reached out to Radcliffe to see how he's doing in the years since we recorded that interview, and he sent us this voice note. It's been quite an interesting time. My father died last year, uh, but not before he had time to realise and see that I had turned a poacher turned gamekeeper, effectively, um, as I now work in the field of uh, addiction recovery and uh, for my sins and uh, put my hard-won experience to hopefully good use in steering others uh, towards the light. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Um, But we will speak. Um, I'll give you a call. I'm so sorry that I'm being flaky, but it's just been busy. Life happens. Hope you're well. Lots of love. Thank you, Radcliffe. That's it from us. If you have a suggestion of a favourite interview from the past that you'd like us to replay in the future, then do drop us a line via our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and fill out the feedback form on our website. You can also browse all our back catalogue and support the show financially. I've been Ollie Mann with producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with a brand new show on March the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.